It may surprise you to know that one of the issues God addresses very often in his word, because of its seriousness, is the issue of injustice. Injustice is extremely abhorrent to God. When people in positions of power or authority take advantage of others, mistreat others, abuse others, defraud others, or fail to defend those who should be defended, that is something that God takes very seriously. Therefore, judges or magistrates or or arbitrators or others in authority who mete out injustice or allow some kind of miscarriage of justice face severe consequences before the righteous judge of the universe. God expects those who are in such positions to act in righteousness and equity and justice. Psalm 82, 2 through 4, records these words from God to the judges and leaders of Israel. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Isaiah 1.23 says, Your rulers are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Jeremiah 5.28 says, They have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Jeremiah 22.13 says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. There are many other passages that I could quote from the Old and New Testament, but I think you get the point. Injustice is a serious matter to the Lord God, whatever form it takes. That's why Leviticus 19.35 says, You shall do no injustice in measurement of weight, length, or volume. In other words, regardless of the form it takes, injustice is always wrong. There is social injustice, relational injustice, civil injustice, criminal injustice, business injustice, racial injustice, and other forms of injustice. Regardless of the form, it is something that God sees as completely unacceptable. It's always a serious matter to him. Down through the centuries, ever since the fall of man, there have been multitudes of cases of injustice. But never has there been a greater miscarriage of justice than when Jesus was arrested and tried as a criminal. That was the grossest example of injustice ever to take place in all of human history. 
The only man who never sinned and never did anything wrong was unjustly arrested, unjustly tried, and unjustly condemned. We see the beginning of that corrupted process in our text this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our trek through Mark's gospel this morning. And we come in our ongoing, ongoing series through Mark 14 to verses 53 to 65. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But but not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is this? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heavens. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. This is the beginning of the worst example of injustice in all of human history. That is no overstatement. It is no exaggeration. Nothing that has ever happened is worse than what the leaders and people did to Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. And remember, much of this did take place throughout the night. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane very late after he had celebrated Passover with his disciples. He left the upper room in Jerusalem and walked across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. There he prayed earnestly and fervently. Just as he finished praying, Judas showed up with a mob of soldiers and guards to arrest Jesus. After he was apprehended, Jesus was taken back to the city of Jerusalem to be tried by various groups or individuals. In all, he went through six trials. There were three religious trials and three judicial trials. Now, Mark doesn't record all of the trials, but we know about them from combining all four of the gospel accounts. 
By the way, all of these trials were illegal and unjust. Some took place in the middle of the night. They took place in private places instead of in public. And the only goal or purpose of those involved was to ramrod a guilty verdict so they could murder Jesus without repercussion. Justice was the farthest thing from everyone's mind. The first trial that Mark records was a religious trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. That's what we just saw in the reading of our text. Notice how Mark introduces it in verse 50, or how he states it in verse uh, beginning in the text. In verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. We know from John's gospel that this is actually the second trial Jesus went through on this night. First of all, he was taken to Annas, who was the former high priest. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And even though Caiaphas was the high priest at this time, Annas was still the one in power behind the scenes. After Annas had examined Jesus, he sent him bound to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. That's where Mark picks up the story here in verse 53. As I mentioned a moment ago, this was a religious trial. You see, the Jewish people didn't have the authority to carry out capital punishment, but they were the ones who wanted Jesus dead. The Romans, who were really in charge, didn't have anything against Jesus, and they didn't care what he did as long as he did not incite insurrection in some way. In other words, as long as Jesus didn't make it more difficult for the Romans to keep the peace, they really didn't care what he did. But the Jewish leaders were the ones who wanted Jesus dead. Jesus upset the apple cart by the things he said, the things he taught, and the things he did, such as when he cleansed the temple on two different occasions. So the Jewish leaders knew that they had to build some kind of case against Jesus and then convince the Romans that Jesus deserved to die. That's why you see Jesus being transferred back and forth between Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Herod, and Pilate. Pilate was the one who finally gave in to the pressure to have Jesus executed. And he had the authority to do that, the only one who had the authority to do that. But it was the Jewish leaders composed of Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin that wanted to build a case to convince the Romans to have Jesus crucified. But it was no easy task because Jesus had not done anything wrong. That is why they looked for false witnesses and people who were willing to perjure themselves. Yet even though many could be found who were willing to do that, probably for money, the Jewish leaders knew that the false testimony wasn't convincing enough to stand up under examination by the Roman officials. So that's what you see going on in the trials of Jesus. It can be very confusing if you don't realize this dynamic between the Jews and the Romans. The mock trials begin with the Jewish leadership. 
First, Jesus was taken to Annas, and then he was led away to Caiaphas, which is where Mark picks up the story. The end of verse 53 says, And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. They were assembled because this was nothing but a pre-planned conspiracy. The time was already past midnight, and yet everyone was assembled. This entire plan had been set into motion when Judas agreed to betray Jesus. Evidently, Judas told the leaders that he could betray Jesus conveniently on the night of Passover, so this group knew they had to be ready to go to work late on this evening. They were eager to get the ball rolling to get Jesus out of their hair. So verse 54 tells us, But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. I'm sure you remember that Peter had fled with the other disciples when Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. But somewhere along the line, he slipped back into the picture. He was following at a distance, we are told, because he was probably concerned about getting in trouble for what he had done back in the garden when he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. He was probably afraid of being recognized, so he followed at a distance. Yet it was somewhat commendable that he followed, because it is true that he really did love the Lord Jesus. Like many of us, His love was fickle at times, and his love wasn't all that it should have been, but he did love the Lord Jesus. He was concerned about what was going to happen to his beloved teacher and master and friend. So he followed at a distance to see how this nightmare of an evening was going to end. We are told in verse 55, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Notice their goal in this mock trial. Their goal wasn't to find out the truth and give Jesus a fair trial. They had one goal from the very beginning, and it's stated here in this verse, and that was to put him to death. This was not a trial to determine justice. It was a trial to seek death. And all the bigwigs were gathered. Mark tells us in verse 53 that the scribes and the elders were all there. Now he mentions the chief priests again and the council. That is a reference to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court of Israel. It was a large court composed of 71 members. They were present because the Jewish leaders figured that by getting their supreme court to declare Jesus guilty of something worthy of capital punishment, then surely the Romans would go right along with that verdict. This was all a bunch of political maneuvering and political arm twisting. The Jewish leaders wanted to give some kind of impression of law and order even though it was really just a farce. This verse tells us that they were looking for testimony, and Matthew tells us that they were specifically looking for false testimony. What kind of trial is this? 
The judges were looking for false testimony. Verse 56 says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. These supposed witnesses all stepped forward in an attempt to discredit Jesus. You have to wonder what their motives were. Maybe they hoped to be rewarded by the corrupt Jewish leadership, or maybe they didn't like Jesus because of the way he stood uncompromisingly on God's truth. It is not uncommon for people to dislike or despise others who take a stand for God's word. We still see that kind of response today. So it wasn't difficult to find a lot of witnesses to try to indict Jesus, but the problem was that they couldn't agree on what Jesus did wrong, and the things they did say didn't have enough credibility to stand up under the eventual examination by the Romans. In fact, to let you know how much they were stretching things and reaching for something, Matthew tells us that eventually two witnesses came forward with an, with an accusation that agreed, and the next couple of verses tell us what that accusation was. Verse 57, Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So that was the best they could come up with. If you know what Jesus actually said in John 2, then you know that even this wasn't an accurate accusation. But think about this. Even if it had been accurate, what would have been criminal about the statement, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days? What would have been illegal about that statement? Now, maybe the enemies of Jesus could have tried to prove that such a statement was absurd, but there was nothing unlawful about the statement. But it illustrates the point that this whole trial was nothing but a sham. Jesus had not done anything wrong. Jesus had not said anything wrong. And I believe the high priest knew it, and was trying to get Jesus to indict himself in some way. So we read in verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What, what is it these men testify against you? You see, he's getting desperate. He's trying to get something out of Jesus that would be self-incriminating. He is baiting Jesus and hoping Jesus will say something that can be used against him. But Jesus knew what was going on. And he maintained a dignified, majestic silence. Verse 61 tells us, But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of of the blessed. Caiaphas knew that if Jesus answered this question in the affirmative, that would be seen as blasphemous by the court. It still wouldn't be grounds for capital punishment in the eyes of the Roman officials, but it would be in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. The question 
actually had two parts. Caiaphas asked if Jesus claimed to be the Christ, which is the promised Messiah, and he asked if Jesus claimed to be the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God, which is a title of deity. Both of those were unthinkable to Caiaphas. Both of those were unthinkable to the Sanhedrin and the other Jewish leaders. They had been so unwilling to look at Jesus with intellectual honesty, and they had been so unwilling to hear what Jesus had to say that they viewed him as nothing more than a self-appointed rabbi. Besides, Jesus was such a threat to them in their positions that they weren't about to look at the evidence for his claims. They didn't want to know who he really was. They just wanted to get him out of the way. And when they realized he wasn't going to go away on his own, they decided that they had to get rid of him in whatever way it took. That's why they were willing to go through all this effort to set Jesus up to be executed. And that is why Caiaphas started pressing the point. According to Matthew's gospel, Caiaphas did this by putting Jesus under oath. He put Jesus under oath to state if he really was the Christ, the Son of God. And the answer is in verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus accepted the oath and answered the question. He responded by saying, I am. But notice, he didn't stop there. He went on to buttress his affirmation with some imagery taken from passages in Hebrew Scripture that are clearly references to the promised Messiah. He said, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He was basically telling them that one day he would come back as their judge. Now when we read Jesus stating these words, they may not mean that much to us, but I'm sure these words, because of the passages they came from, these words dropped like an atomic bomb before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Jesus here in his response pulled together two passages from Hebrew Scripture that are passages about the promised Messiah. Let's look at both of those passages. Go back to Psalm 110, first of all. Back into Hebrew Scripture. Psalm 110. This is one of the passages that Jesus alluded to or referenced in his response to Caiaphas. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is the first passage Jesus alluded to in his answer to Caiaphas. He said, you will see me sitting at the right hand of power, the right hand of authority. It comes right out of Psalm 110, verse 1. Notice that the first time the word Lord is used in this verse, it is composed of all capital letters. Capital L-O-R-D. 
That's a very important feature to notice when you are reading in the Old Testament. Now this gets a little bit technical, but stay with me here. Whenever you are reading in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament, and you see the word LORD in all capital letters, the translators and printers are letting you know that this is the personal divine name Yahweh. The name Yahweh can be spelled out as capital Y, then small A-H-W-E-H, or it can be written in all capital letters, Y-H-W-H. Because it appears in Hebrew Scripture as capital Y-H-W-H, that is brought over into our English translations as LORD with all capital letters. Capital L-O-R-D, all caps. So whenever you are reading in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament and you see the word LORD in all capital letters, the translators and printers are letting you know that this is the personal divine name Yahweh. So that's the first usage of the word Lord here in verse 1. But notice that the second usage of the word is spelled with a capital L, but small O-R-D. The Lord said to my Lord. And that is because this is the Hebrew word Adon, which means Lord or Master. So, again, whenever you're reading in Hebrew Scripture, or the Old Testament, and you see the word Lord with a capital L, but small o-r-d, you know that this is not the personal divine name Yahweh. That is the word Adon, or another Hebrew word that means Master, Sovereign One, Lord. So those are the two words that are used in this verse written by David. And what does he say here? He says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's quite a statement. First of all, it is saying that there were two lords in this interchange. Yahweh and another lord. Secondly, it tells us that the second lord is the one of whom David says, He is my Lord. Now David wasn't implying that Yahweh wasn't his Lord, because there are many places where he affirms that Yahweh was his personal Lord. For example, just a few verses earlier, up in verse 26 of the previous psalm, David says, Help me, O Lord my God. Now notice up there in verse 26 of the previous psalm, that the word LORD is in all capital letters, which tells us this is the personal divine name Yahweh. So there in that verse, David refers to Yahweh as his personal God. So David embraced Yahweh as his Lord and God, but here in verse 1 of Psalm 110, David refers to another Lord as my Lord. Since David was the king of Israel... Who else but Yahweh could have been his Lord? Who else? Whoever it was, that person also had to be divine like Yahweh. So that's what this verse is implying or asserting. The Hebrew word, my Lord, is used throughout Scripture to refer to God. So David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referred to the Messiah as divine. Yahweh said to my Lord, that is the Messiah, who also is divine, 
Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So let me state it clearly. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referred to the Messiah as divine. And Jesus told Caiaphas that this verse in Psalm 110 was referring to him. It's basically what he said. Now that is a magnanimous claim. But that's not the only claim Jesus made. He also, in his response to Caiaphas, alluded to another passage, and that is Daniel chapter 7. So on our way back to Mark, stop off at Daniel chapter 7. And notice what he says here. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel, in one of his visions, says, I was watching in the night, Daniel 7, 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the exact phrase Jesus uses in his response to Caiaphas. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is the other passage to which Jesus referred, and it also depicts the Messiah as more than merely human. He's the Son of Man with the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And in, in response to Caiaphas, Jesus asserted that this passage refers to him. It's another magnanimous claim. Now go back to Mark 14 to see how Caiaphas reacted to this. Back to Mark 14. And look at verse 63. Here is the response. Then the high priest tore his clothes. And he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? When he heard Jesus say what Jesus said, he knew exactly what Jesus was saying. We wouldn't get it immediately because we're not Jewish. But he knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And he tore his clothes in response. Tearing of the clothes was a cultural way to express deep grief or sadness or profound sorrow or brokenness. However... This is interesting. Leviticus 10.6 and 21.10 specifically forbid the high priest from tearing his clothes. So Caiaphas transgressed the law of God by his actions, which shouldn't surprise us. He didn't really have any regard for the word of God, or else he would have listened to what it said about the Messiah, and he would have seen that Jesus is the Messiah. The Talmud said that the high priest could tear his clothes if he witnessed blasphemy. But hear this, the Talmud isn't the Word of God. What an illustration of how the Jewish leaders disregarded the Word of God and substituted their own ideas or opinions. The, the authority of God's Word was subjected to the writings of man. This whole scene is sickening and despicable. Verse 64, he says, You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. 
Well, that's what they've been wanting to, to conclude from the very beginning. As I said earlier, their goal wasn't to find out the truth and give Jesus a fair trial. They had one goal from the very beginning, and that was to put him to death. Or more specifically, find some way to get the Romans to put him to death. This was not a trial to determine justice. This was a trial to seek death. This is a classic case of a rush to judgment, but it was worse than any other that has ever occurred. Verse 65 tells us, Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officer struck him, or slapped him with the palms of their hands. Now their true motives are coming out. Now the condition of their hearts is really seen. These people were filled with a murderous hatred of the one whose life and teaching showed them to be the ungodly people they really were. They hid behind their religion. They hid behind their positions. They pretended to be righteous, pious. But the fact of the matter is that they were filled with ungodliness and hatred for the one whose life and teaching exposed them. Beloved, don't ever, don't ever underestimate the hatred that people have for God and his truth. People are often able to mask it and cover it up and pretend it's not there. But if they are unwilling to submit to God and his truth, their hatred grows. Now here's the key. Their hatred grows the more exposure they have. You see, Jesus was an irritant to these people. If he would have just disappeared or gone away, then they could have ignored the true condition of their hearts. If Jesus had just gone away, they could have continued to convince themselves they were righteous, they were pious. But his life and his teaching continually turned the spotlight on them, and it annoyed them to no end. Now it's all coming out in the way they are treating him. They were even willing to stoop to the point of spitting in his face. It is, it is inhumane to do something like that to another human being. It's, it's despicable beyond description. Oh, what hatred they had for Jesus. They are mocking the one whose life and teaching made them so uncomfortable, so ill at ease. And again I say, that is exactly how many people feel about the Lord if, here's the key, if they are continually exposed to Him and His Word. If not, then it doesn't, it, oftentimes it doesn't come out because there's nothing that prompts it to come out. It's there, but they're not around the Lord and His Word and His truth. So there's no reaction. 
You see, if someone isn't exposed to the Lord in His Word, it's very easy for that person to assume that he or she has no hatred for Jesus. In fact, if you were to suggest such a thing, they might be shocked. What do you mean, I hate Jesus? I don't hate Jesus. I just leave Him alone. It's only when they are continually exposed to Him and His Word that their true feelings are brought to the surface. Then they can't ignore Him. Then they can't push Him aside. Then they can't dismiss Him. They have to do something about the irritation. There's a response to this annoyance. That's when it comes out just how much they don't want Him, and they don't want His Word, and they don't want His truth. Doesn't it break your heart to see them doing this to our Lord? I hope you're not so familiar with the story that it fails to move you. This, this is an indescribable tragedy. An injustice that is utterly impossible to put into words. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been treated unjustly? Have you ever been treated unfairly? I'll tell you something. Few things are harder to take. Jesus knows what it is like. He's been there. And he can understand. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As we close this morning, I want to remind you that Jesus endured this. Jesus went through all of this and more, much more, the crucifixion, which is when he drank the cup of God's wrath. He did that so that we might be able to have forgiveness, so that we could experience salvation. Have you received that salvation? Have you humbled yourself before God and in simple childlike faith called out to the Lord Jesus as Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Have you called out to him? Remember that Jesus dying on the cross to provide for salvation doesn't make anything automatic. There's nothing automatic about it. I especially think of this every year as we approach Easter, that so many people in our society assume that because Jesus died and rose again, it's automatic. We're all going to heaven. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. There has to be an individual response, a personal response to the gospel. So I ask you this morning, have you responded to the gospel? By turning to Jesus Christ in faith. And if you have, if you're a child of God, then again, I want to remind you, Jesus can relate to your heartache in life. Jesus knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused. He knows what it's like to experience injustice, unfairness. You ever feel like life is unfair? It doesn't compare to what Jesus went through but it reminds us that he understands. He can relate. Turn to him.
Father, we don't even know how to respond when we read a story like what we've read this morning from Mark 14 to see the, just the utter injustice, the unfairness, the indignity, the wrongness of what happened just at this one trial, not to mention that there were five others that resulted in Jesus being condemned to death and then drinking your cup of wrath on the cross for our sin. May this stir our hearts and move our hearts toward the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.